You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 11. One of the things we like to do here at Whitefields, we like to study through books of the Bible. So we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll start at the beginning and we'll study through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Because one of our things we want to do is we want to hear from God. We want to let him speak to us on his terms. And so we find one of the best ways to do that is to study through books of the Bible. And right now we're studying through the books of First and Second Kings. We're calling this series Desiring the Kingdom. And, and that's because we realize that as we study these 400 years of Israel's history, we're not just studying history for history's sake. These things are written for a purpose to point us to the eternal kingdom and the eternal king, Jesus Christ. And we're desiring him as we read about the kingdoms of the earth. So for the past several weeks, we've been looking at the life of King Solomon. And we've been looking at the golden age of the nation of Israel. But today, as we come to chapter 11, we're going to see the end of both of those things. The title of today's message is, The End Matters More Than the Beginning. The End Matters More Than the Beginning. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for your grace towards us. Lord, thank you for your love for us. And Lord, as we study your word today, we don't just want to know more information, Lord. We, we want you to work in our hearts, Lord. Bring to our attention things that you want to change, things you want to transform. And Lord, may we be malleable and teachable in your hands. Lord, we ask that uh, truly by your spirit, by your power, Lord, you would enable us to not just be hearers of the word and knowers of truths, but Lord, help us to be doers and appliers of those things as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've heard the saying, it goes, all's well that ends well. All's well that ends well. Isn't that true? No matter how something starts out or how it goes throughout the course of it, how it ends is really the most important thing. Just ask the 2016 Atlanta Falcons football team, if you guys remember those guys, they scored more points that year. They had a great season, the best season in the NFL the 2016 Atlanta Falcons did. They scored more points than any other NFL team that year. Their quarterback, Matt Ryan, was elected the most valuable player of the entire NFL. They won their division, and they breezed through the playoffs. It wasn't just that they won in the playoffs, it's that they destroyed their opponents in both games. In fact, in the NFC Championship game, they beat the Packers by 23 points. In, in uh, Super Bowl 51, they dominated the first half of the game. Absolutely. They, they racked up a 25-point lead over the Patriots, which is tied for the biggest lead ever in Super Bowl history going into halftime. I probably don't need to tell you guys who the other team was that went in with a 25-point deficit into halftime. Of course, it was the Broncos against the Redskins, but... We're trying to forget that. And uh, the, the statistical projections throughout the game, especially at halftime, were that the Falcons were almost 100% going to win. Except, if you know, they didn't win. And not only did they not win, but they lost the game by 15 points. See, no matter how something starts out, it's how it ends that is more important. Just ask Stephen Bradbury. Stephen Bradbury was a speed skater for Australia in the 2002 Olympic Winter Games in 
Salt Lake City, Utah. The problem was, and this is really a big problem if you're a speed skater, Stephen Bradbury was not the fastest skater in the world, not by a long shot, and he knew it. And because he knew it, Stephen devised a strategy. He said, because I'm not the fastest skater in the world, but I'm in the Olympics, I am determined to do three things. Number one, he said, I will finish every race. Number two, he said, I will endeavor to not disqualify myself ever. And number three, I will try to not crash. Now, that might sound simple, but understand this. In speed skating, it's actually really common for racers to disqualify themselves and to crash and not finish races because of those things. So Stephen figured if he can avoid making those mistakes and doing those things, then he might get pretty far. And his strategy paid off. He raced in three races in the Olympics. In all three races, right, these were qualifiers and then the gold medal race. In all three races, he was in last place the entire race by a lot. Like these races are on the internet. You can watch them. But in all three races, the racers ahead of him either did things that broke the rules and were therefore disqualified, or they crashed and were not able to finish the race, including the gold medal race, which Stephen won. And the way he won is because he was way behind the entire race. But at the end, as they rounded the last corner, all the other skaters crashed into each other and they were all sprawled out in the ice. And because Stephen was so far behind, right, because he was so much slower than everybody else, he was able to actually skate around them, cross the finish line, and win the gold medal. Stephen Bradbury's gold medal was the first ever Olympic gold medal in the Winter Olympics for the country of Australia, and he became instantly a national hero. He was inducted into the Australia uh, Sports Hall of Fame, and he was given the prestigious Order of Australia medal from the Queen of England, right? So he, he became a hero, not because he was the fastest skater, but because he finished every race, didn't disqualify himself, and didn't crash. Stephen Bradbury understood, no matter how you start out, how you finish is much more important. King Solomon, by the way, he acknowledged the same thing in all of his wisdom. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8, Solomon said this, Finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride. And yet it's a bit ironic because if you look at Solomon's life, as we have been, as we've been studying these first chapters of 1 Kings, you'll see that although Solomon started out great, he didn't finish well. Here in 1 Kings chapter 11, what we're going to see is that all of Solomon's compromises that we've seen throughout the last few chapters, all of his compromises culminated in apostasy and enmity. But there's good news. There's good news for you and good news for me. And that is this. In Christ Jesus, your story can have a better ending. Your story can have a better ending. What's so interesting about Solomon is that he was a very smart person, right? He knew all the right information. We've been reading about how incredibly smart Solomon was. He wrote the book of Proverbs, he, which is full of practical wisdom and incredible truth about God and about life. And yet, although Solomon knew all the right things in his head, Solomon's heart was far from God. Solomon didn't have a knowledge problem. He didn't have a head problem. He had a heart problem. And you know what? That's the same thing that's true for me and it's true for you as well. 
And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, Paul the Apostle explains that for you and I, our problem is not that we don't know the right information. It's not that we don't know right from wrong, in other words. It's not that we don't know, you know, right and wrong. What the, what's problem, the problem is that we don't do right and wrong, even when we know the right things to do. See, like Solomon, it's not always that we have a head problem. Sometimes it's that, and, and most often the root issue is that we have a heart problem. And so the question for us as we look at this is this. If we have the same problem that Solomon had, then how do we avoid falling into the trap and, and having our story end in the same tragic way that Solomon's ended? How can our stories have a better ending than his story had? Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy and enmity. But our story can have a better ending in Jesus Christ. Let's take that sentence. What we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we've been summarizing the message, the key idea of the passage in one sentence. That's our sentence for today. And then we'll break it down as we go through the passage. That's the way we've been doing it. So let's begin by looking at the first part of that. Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy. First Kings begins with these words. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. We've been reading about the glory of of Solomon's kingdom. We've been reading about Solomon's skill as an organizational leader, and yet sprinkled through these past 10 chapters have been hints over and over that there's something truly wrong in Solomon's heart, that something is a brew that's not good. Well, here in chapter 11, it's no longer a hint. Here in chapter 11, it's blatantly obvious. It's a red light flashing, right? Some, the house is on fire, basically, at this point. We read that Solomon loved many foreign women who worshiped other gods, and they brought this pagan influence into Israel. Now, there's two obvious problems here. Number one is that he married foreign women. Number two, it's that he married many women. See, this is a problem because both of these things, marrying foreign women and marrying many women, were specifically, explicitly told by God to not do these things. Solomon was told, the kings were told not to do these things, but Solomon did them anyway. Again, it was not a head problem. It was a heart problem. He knew that God had said not to do this, but he did it anyway. See, when it says that Solomon intermarried with foreign women, please understand that this is not about race. This is about faith. This was not about race. This was about faith. Let me explain. God never forbid the Jewish people from marrying people of other ethnicities. What he forbid was marrying people of other faiths. In fact, I'll prove that to you. Some of the female heroes of the Bible, people like Ruth and Rahab and even Sarah, who's called the mother of our faith, they were of non-Jewish ethnic origin. Ruth was from the country of Moab. Rahab was a Canaanite. Sarah was a Chaldean. In Jesus' family tree in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, five women their names are given. And out of those five women, three of them are of non-Jewish ethnic origin. That's more than 50%. So the prohibition about not marrying foreign women was not about race. It was about faith. With Ruth and Rahab and Sarah, they were pagan women from foreign nations, but they became worshipers of the true and living God. So when we read here that Solomon married foreign women, please understand that what it means is that Solomon married pagan women. 
That was the issue. And rather than them coming and worshiping the true and living God, rather they converted Solomon to worship their gods. Solomon married not only foreign women, he also married many women. It says in verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. It's just a ridiculous number. And his wives turned away his heart. By marrying all these women, Solomon was disregarding, first of all, God's plan for the kings of Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, which is a passage we've been returning to over and over again throughout this study of the opening chapters of 1 Kings as we read about Solomon's life, Deuteronomy 17 is important because there is, in the law of Moses, the regulations and the directions that God gave to the future kings of Israel. Well, there in Deuteronomy 17, it says this, that God had specifically said to the kings that they were not to acquire many wives. And why? Because he said they will turn their heart away from the Lord, lest they turn their hearts away from God. See, God knew that pursuing romantic relationships with many people would have this effect that it would lead people's hearts away from him. And God didn't want that. In fact, we know he cared so much about Solomon's heart three times so far in this book, and it'll be four times by the end of this chapter. God talks about how much he wants Solomon's heart. And friends, you know that's true for you. That is what God wants from you, not just the work of your hands. Primarily what God wants is he wants your heart. So when Solomon married all these women, he wasn't only disregarding God's plan for the kings, but he was disregarding something else. He was disregarding God's general instruction, general plan for all people. See, in the book of Genesis, we see that God's design from the beginning is told to us in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In the opening chapters of the Bible, it's told to us two times that God's plan, his intent for marriage is one man and one woman together before God forever. So when we read about different people in the Old Testament who did polygamy, right? They have multiple wives. The Bible isn't saying that that was great and it's not condoning it. What, what's happening is the Bible's just reporting. This is what happened. It's being honest. It's, it's telling you the news. But you'll notice this. Whenever you read about polygamy in the Old Testament, it's never good. It always ends in disaster. It never says, oh, and he had a lot of wives, and they were all great, and they all got along and, and loved each other. No, it's always like there was drama and trauma, and everybody hated their lives, and it screwed up the kids, right? So it's always really, really bad. It always leads to a disaster. It was contrary to the plan and design of God. And yet, in the ancient world, it was not only accepted, but if you were wealthy, polygamy was expected. It was expected. And here's why. Because it was a status symbol. If you were rich, it was a status symbol to have many wives. It was like driving a Bentley or, or owning a basketball team, right? It's so what you did if you were rich to show other people how rich you are. Because you can afford to take care of all these people and feed them and provide for them. So the more wives you had, the more it was like a status symbol to other people. That's how rich I am. Now, of course, this wasn't good. It objectified women. The whole system was set up to satisfy and glorify men, not to love and cherish and honor women. So it was a bad thing. In God's design, right, one man and one woman giving themselves fully and exclusively to one another, that was, a, that was designed to be a picture of the relationship that God wants to have with us, with his people. So Solomon disregarded, first of all, the specific command to kings not to marry many women. He also 
disregarded the general command of the people of God not to intermarry with pagan nations. And notice this, the reasoning given in both of those commands is the same. The reasoning, it says there in verse 2, so that they do not turn your hearts away from the Lord. That's what God cared about. And what do we read then in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3? That as a result of all of these marriages, what happened? Solomon's heart turned away from the Lord. Of course it did. Solomon might have thought that he was an exception, that he could cross those lines that God had drawn, and those things wouldn't happen to him because he's too strong, he's too smart. But of course it did. The same thing happened to him. He wasn't an exception. And it says that he clung to these women in love. Last week, one of the things we talked about was we asked the question, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Does it just mean, you know, what does it mean to believe the gospel? Does it just mean that you believe that Jesus was a real historical figure? Does it just mean that you give a nod and assent to accept that the things the Bible says about historical events are, are accurate? No, it's something more than that. To believe in Jesus, we said, means to trust in and rely on and cling to Jesus and what he's done for you in order to save you. And so here when we read that Solomon was clinging to these women, understand he's clinging to these women instead of clinging to the Lord. It means that his heart is given over to these romantic relationships and to the status symbol that they represented rather than being given over to the Lord. He's looking to these relationships. He's looking to this status symbol to give him fulfillment and a sense of satisfaction. But guys, you know what? If there's one thing we know about Solomon, it's that he was not a fulfilled and content and satisfied person. Take his own words for it. Look at what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 20, verse 27. He said, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of men. Solomon accumulated a ridiculous number of wives. He had more money than he could even count. He had all these relationships, more relationships than you could ever tend to properly in one lifetime. And yet, even with all of these wives, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that he was plagued by discontentment. He was plagued by a lack of satisfaction and contentment in his life. Even with all these things, he did not find the satisfaction he was looking for. You see, Solomon bought into a lie. It's a lie that all of us are tempted to fall into. And that lie is this, that you can fill the void in your soul with the things of this world. That's a lie that we buy into, that you can fill the void in your soul with the things of this world. But it doesn't work that way. And Solomon's life stands as a testimony to that fact. Here's a man who had everything, more than everything, right? And, and no amount of relationships, no amount of success, no amount of things could ever fill the void that he felt in his soul. And that same thing is true for you and for me. See, the reason why is because you were created by God and you were created for God. The purpose for which you were created was to be in relationship with God. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, he put it this way. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Now think about it this way. I've got this cup, right? This cup, this is you. This is me, right? We, we are like this cup. And here's the thing with it. It has a hole in the bottom, right? It has a hole in the bottom. So here's what happens with this cup. You, you want to fill up this cup. You say, my cup is empty. 
So you look to other people, you look to other things to fill you up. You tell other people, pour into me, more, more, pour into me. But no matter how much is poured into you, you will always be empty. Why? Because there's something broken, there's something missing. So no matter how much you pursue, no matter how much you try to fill yourself up with this thing or that thing, no matter how much you tell other people, pour into me, you'll be empty again. Right? What you're, what you're needing is for someone to fix what is broken in you, to fill up that which is missing in you, right? And you'll, you'll look to other things. I'll look to my job. I'll look to my family, and I'll say, you exist to give me a sense of fulfillment. You look to your accomplishments to fill you up, to satisfy you, to pour into you, but it will never be enough. What you need is for that which is broken to be fixed. You need for that which is missing to be filled. And once that happens, then here's the, here's the good news. Not only can you become full, but everything and everybody who pours into you after that, it's gravy, right? It just overflows. And then you become, rather than being that needy person who's always saying, pour into me, you become a person who's overflowing and you begin to pour into others. You become a giving person rather than a needy person. See, this is what Paul the Apostle tells us in his letter to the Philippians. He says, I have learned the secret to being content no matter what circumstances I'm in, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. My strength, my contentment, it comes from knowing that I am accepted and loved and redeemed by God. And he has a plan for my life that he is working out. He's in control. And what he's working out will be for my good and it will be for his glory ultimately. You see, Solomon bought into the lie that you can fill the void in your soul with the things of this world. And of course it didn't work. You know, perhaps Solomon again thought he was a special case, that the rules didn't apply to him in the same way that they applied to other people. I mean, Solomon, he was smart, right? He knew what God said. And yet when it came to these warnings, don't intermarry with pagan nations. Don't marry multiple women because these things will draw your heart away from the Lord. Solomon heard that and he said, yeah, but that won't happen to me. I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. I can handle it. Maybe other people, but not me. You know, maybe Solomon thought that his feelings uh, of romantic love for these women justified his doing this, even though God said not to do it. Right? Because look at what it says there at the end of verse 2, that Solomon clung to these women in love. He might have said, yes, I know that God says I shouldn't do this, but... But God, you don't understand. I'm in love here, right? Like that makes it okay, right? I get to be an exception because I'm in love. And apparently Solomon fell in love a lot, right? Like, like every 30 minutes he was falling in love. And somehow that gives him a, a pass on things. There's a common misnomer in our day that having romantic feelings for someone gives you permission to do things that are generally not okay whether that's entering into inappropriate relationships, whether it's abandoning your family. The fact is, though, guys, and everybody who's been around for a few years knows this, is that at some point in your life, you will feel romantic attraction to people who you have no business being romantically involved in, right? So just feeling these feelings does not give you an exception to the rule, but whatever the exact situation I think a lot of us are prone to this. I know in my life, this is something we can be prone to. We can fall into the trap of believing that I'm an exception. I can cross those lines that God has drawn, and I'll be okay because I can handle it. That's not wise. Look at Solomon. 
smartest guy in the world, wrote books full of wisdom, knew all the right answers, and yet he wasn't smart enough to humble himself before God and apply God's simple instructions to his life, and it led to disaster. Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy. It says in verse 4, When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not truly or was not true to the Lord his God, as was the heart, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon went after, verse 5, Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Verse 6, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Verse 7, So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Guys, this is Solomon. You almost wouldn't believe this was true if you didn't read it written here. This is Solomon, the same Solomon who built the temple. The same Solomon who prayed the longest prayer in the Bible, that amazing prayer of dedication. That same Solomon who saw the glory of the Lord fill the temple. And now here he is burning incense and standing and even building altars to pagan gods. And if you read this passage, you'll notice there's a progression. There's four gods listed, but it builds up to them, especially if you know who these gods were, what they represented, and how they were worshipped. You'll notice that as it goes on, it says later on, then he built an altar to Chemosh, and then to Molech, right? What it's doing is it's increasing in severity as to, to the gods that he worships, because here's the thing, Chemosh and Molech were both worshipped by offering human sacrifices, not just any human sacrifices, but child sacrifices. In Molech's case, they would put children on a, a burning hot altar alive and sacrifice them. And you look at that and you say, how can somebody get to this place where they sanction and build and stand by and watch as atrocities take place? How does Solomon get from being at the temple of God to standing at this pagan altar? It was gradual, just like in our lives. It, it, it involved a lot of compromise, and it went over time, and it involved a lot of excuses. See, most people don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, uh, I'm going to turn away from the Lord and destroy my soul because that's a good way to spend my Tuesday, right? Like, most of the time it happens gradually over time by compromise. It happens by adding things, right? People don't just say, I'm going to turn away from the Lord. Most often what people say is, I'm going to just add this thing and it'll be fine because I can do both. I can still love the Lord. I can still, you know, give my life to the Lord. I'll just add this thing and it's cool because I can handle it. Look, Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy. This is a very vivid picture. Solomon standing at these altars while atrocities take place. This is where this can lead to. His compromises culminated in apostasy. And not just that, they also culminated in apostasy and enmity. We read in verse 9, The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my commandment and my statutes that I commanded you, I will tear your kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your day days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. 
Okay, we're going to talk about this more next week as we look at chapter 12 and we see how the kingdom was divided. That's going to be important next week. But here's the thing. Under Solomon, Israel experienced a golden age. They were unified, but now that is coming to an end. The kingdom is going to be divided. And in verse 14, we read this. The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. In fact, from verses 14 all the way down to verse 40, we're going to read about three adversaries that the Lord raised up against Solomon. In verse 14 is the first one, Hadad. The next one is Razon in verse 23. And the third one is Jeroboam in verse 26. He's going to be particularly important. And next week in our study, we're actually going to come back to this chapter and see some of the things about Jeroboam. But up until this point, Solomon has experienced peace. He has made alliances with other countries. He has not had a threat of outside forces attacking Israel. And now suddenly, all that has changed. He's facing attacks on all sides. Hadad comes from the south with the Egyptians to attack Israel. Razon is attacking from the north together with the Syrians. And Jeroboam is attacking Israel from within, from within the country of Israel. So what we're told is that these attacks, in each case, they were raised up by the Lord. By the Lord. Now, why would God do this? If he loves Israel, if God loves Solomon, if God loves these people, why would he raise up adversaries against them? Is God petty? Is he vindictive? Does he say, Solomon, if you're not going to do things the way I want you to do them, then I'm going to, you know, do this to get back at you? No. See, God, what God is doing, he's stirring up problems for Solomon so that in his distress, Solomon might be driven back into the arms of God, that he might turn back to the Lord in the midst of this distress. You know, as a parent, there can be a way in which, right, you, you, don't, you don't enjoy seeing your kids, like, hurting and suffering. But on the other hand, you kind of like what it produces, right? Like, and you try not to be weird or, or like, morbid about it. But, you know, especially as they get bigger, as they get more independent, like just last night, I was down in my office in the basement, and one of my kids came down. They were really upset about something, and it was awesome, right, for me. <laughs> we had a moment, right, sitting on the lap, hugging, talking. It was great. Now, now on the one hand, I wasn't happy that they were upset and that they were having a hard time, but I was kind of glad because otherwise, right, we don't have that moment. You know, what we see here is that, yes, God is angry with Solomon because of what Solomon is doing. It tells us that. But God still loves Solomon. He loves him. And God still wants Solomon to turn to him and give him his heart. God cares more about Solomon's heart than he cares about Solomon's comfort. And do you know that's true of you as well? God cares more about your heart than he cares about your comfort. And that's a good thing for you and for me. God will allow difficulties in our lives at different times in order to accomplish his goals and purposes through them, both in you and through you. God loves you and God loves Solomon, but it's important that we see this and understand this. Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy and enmity, not only between Solomon and these people, but ultimately, ultimately, between Solomon and God. 
In James chapter four, verse four, uh, James says this. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, where James says there, you adulterous people, understand he's not talking about literal, physical acts of adultery. James is drawing on a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible, which we talked about earlier which is this, that the relationship between God and his people is like, it's akin to a marriage. And therefore, when God's people worship other things, it's like committing spiritual adultery. And so here's Solomon with all these wives going after these other gods, and it's a spiritual adultery. He's sinning against God. He's breaking the covenant with God. And as James says, when we do that, when you sin, when you put yourself, you make yourself an enemy of God. And that's not a good place to be. In fact, several times throughout the Bible, we're told that in the end, the enemies of God will be destroyed. And sadly, Solomon's story ends on this very low note. It ends on this very low note. It says in verses 42 and 43 that after 40 years of being king, Solomon died. It says that he slept with his fathers. Now, that doesn't mean that Solomon went to heaven. That's just, just simply a, a Hebrew euphemism for somebody passing away and dying. We don't know if Solomon ever repented and turned to the Lord in his heart. We certainly hope he did. He may have, but we have no indication that he did in the Bible. In fact, to the contrary, in Hebrews chapter 11, where we're given a list of the Old Testament saints, those who died in faith, Solomon's name is conspicuously absent. So we can't know for sure, but here's what we do know. This is the last part of our sentence. Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy and enmity, but in Christ, your story can have a better ending. A better ending. The end matters more than the beginning. Solomon's life started out great. He achieved more than most people will ever accomplish in their entire life, and yet in the end, he fell into apostasy and idolatry, and he made himself an enemy of God. And if that could happen to someone like Solomon, someone that wise, someone that smart, someone who knew all the right things, then why would I think that it couldn't happen to me? Why would you think it couldn't happen to you? But friends, there's good news. There's good news. And the good news is your story's not over yet. My story's not over yet. And check out this. Check out what the Bible says about what God does in Christ for his enemies, what God has done for his enemies in Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In, in Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? See, like Solomon, for most of us, we don't have a head problem. We have a heart problem. It isn't that we don't know the right things to do. It's that we don't do the right things even when we know them. See, as a result of our weakness, as a result of rebellion, as a result of our shortcomings, like Solomon, we have made ourselves enemies with God. But here's the good news. Here's what we're told in these verses. That this is how God treats his enemies. He loves them and he pursues them. 
He came to us in the person of Jesus in order to give his life, in order to redeem us and to reconcile us to himself. Guys, who does that? Who does that? Who treats their enemies that way? Who loves those who are enemies of theirs? Who gives, loves them enough to die for them in order to save them and to make them friends? That is what God has done for you in Jesus. This is the hope. This is the message. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the grace of God. Do you know what grace means? It means gift. This is God's gift to you. He offers you salvation, redemption, restoration, a new life, and a new destiny. And to receive it, you've got to let go of the things you've been clinging to and trusting in and relying on that have created a barrier between you and God. And you begin to cling to instead and trust in and rely on Jesus and what he did for you in his life, in his death, in his resurrection to save you. Listen, no matter how you've started, if you've fallen along the way because of what Jesus did for you, your story can have a better ending. And as you trust in him, God will work in you. He will give you a new heart, right? We said it's a heart problem, not a head problem. What we need is a new heart. That's what God promises us in Christ, a new heart. And then by the power of his spirit working within you, he will give you the strength to not only know the right things, but to do the things he calls you to do by his strength. It's his work. It's his glory. It's his grace. May we embrace it today by faith. Amen. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus you have come to us. Though we were enemies, Lord, you have reconciled us through your death and how much more so through your life. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. And as we take communion now, Lord, as we pray over the elements, Lord, we ask, Lord, truly may our hearts be wholly yours. And we ask you give us this new heart in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.